The title for today's talk is The Middle Way is Not Halfway. Those of you who've heard, uh, read the scriptures or read any Buddhist literature know very well that uh, his teachings are often characterized as the teachings of the middle way. In Pali, Majimam Paripara. Whatever the Pali meaning of this Majima Paripada was of the time when we talk about the middle way in our culture there's a, a tendency to think of the middle way as something that is halfway. In fact, I looked up the Oxford Dictionary and this is uh, one of the definitions it gives. Compromise between two extremes. Compromise, uh, halfway. Today I'm going to spend the this 45 minutes or so contrasting this what I consider glib misinter misinterpretation of the middle way with what the Buddha actually meant. The characterization of the teachings as the middle way finds expression in the life history of the Buddha, of actually Siddhartha Gautama, that was his name. Buddha means enlightened, so until his enlightenment he was known as Siddhartha. He was the son of a ruler of a small kingdom in northern India. And uh, as such, he lived uh, in the midst of luxury. Let me share this from his own writings. The Buddha says, after his enlightenment now, monks, he often talks to the monks, it's his audience, Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace. One where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed. All for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. Varanasi is a place of choice in India. My turban was also from Varanasi, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I can imagine somebody following him with that stuff. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained 
in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from the palace. And so that was his life. His father was trying to shield him from any contact with suffering, any witnessing of suffering. And still, as the story goes, he got a, a glimpse of the suffering when he, in some random outing, met what I call the four heavenly messengers. A sick person and old person, a corpse, and a, a wandering mendicant, a sadhu as they call in India. He was not supposed to, to realize that this thing happened, that death happened, that illness happened, that old age happened, and that people reacted to that becoming wandering ascetics. So he decided to join the ranks uh, of the wandering ascetics. Uh, at age 29, he left the palace to his father's dismay. And for nearly six years, he wandered around practicing the most extreme penances. In fact, towards the end of the six years, he had almost starved himself to death. And then he said, no, this is not the way either. <laughs> Neither was being in the midst of all that luxury, keeping myself from seeing anything that was uh, slightly disturbing, or being so totally disturbed that I almost died. So he said, there must be a middle way. And that's, uh, let me share with you how he characterized that middle way. He said in his uh, first uh, speech after his uh, enlightenment, he said, one should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial. One should know, and one should not pursue self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Buddha avoids both extremes. Giving vision, giving knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. Very clearly he doesn't mean a halfway here and he makes it very clear in the following uh, segments. One should know what it is to extol and what it is to despise. Barrage. 
And knowing both, one should neither extol nor disparage, but should teach only the Dharma. See, it doesn't say one should find a middle point between praising and showing disdain for things. It doesn't say that. It said one should teach the Dharma, which of course will become clear what it is uh, as I go on. Then he goes on to say, one should, should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that, one should pursue pleasure within oneself. Of course, pleasure within oneself is a shorthand for the practice. And he even spells it out further down quite clearly. He says, the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. And as he said somewhere else, very obviously, should not be clung to. It's not a question of clinging to that. It's a question of opening to that. Now, this is not what our culture offers in the form pleasure. In fact, our culture is totally fascinated, I think, but what I like by what I like to call the polarity project. We go for the polar ends of the spectrum in order to make them either the object of desire or the object of repulsion. It just, it just crossed my mind. This, this memory from a hospice patient I had been visiting for a long time. And he died very recently, but it's not about his death. Uh, for, for years, he couldn't articulate a word. And then one day, I mean, he, he spoke, but it was mumbo-jumbo. It was incomprehensible. And then one day, he said, three, four words, whatever it is. So clearly, I couldn't believe it. Then he went back into the mumbo-jumbo. The words were, the most beautiful girl in the world. Whatever. I, I think it has a lot to do with this fascination with extremes. Who needs the most beautiful girl in the world? <laughs> Truly. Or the most handsome man in the world. Who needs him? Let me, let me go over how we apply this polarity project to a number of situations. I'll go over first how we do it with the polarity project. Then same situations under 
the halfway approach and then what's the real middle way. One, one situation where very obviously this polarity project surfaces is when we're watching a game, baseball, football, whatever, say on TV or live. Our mind, my mind certainly, immediately seeks identification with one side, whichever side. For me, it's the University of Michigan, of course. <laughs> and takes the score as personal. If we are losing, it's an affront. If we are winning, if Michigan is winning, it's a validation of our lifetime. <laughs> and of course, we do the same when we play ourselves in a very direct way. We get caught in that Seeking victory, the thrill of victory, as contrasted with the agony of defeat. And the eye gets, gets puffed up. In fact, it gets the eye appears either way, because surely the eye as a victor, that's an important eye, but so is also the eye as having suffered a defeat, humiliating defeat. The same thing we do with sports, we do very much so with politics. I see myself doing it while I watch the news and regularly watch the BBC and my dear Amy Goodman, but I never miss a chance to publicize. And, of course, I try not to get caught in this, but I can see myself getting caught in that at times, you know. Kind of, of keeping score of the news. See, when my side scored here and was beaten there. I'm sure it's familiar to some, if not all of you, but subliminal reaction to the news. And then sometimes uh, uh, politics can get really heated up. I, I'm going to tell a story that I didn't really participate in because at the time Raquel was and me were living separately. And there she was in her loft with our children and in the floor above, this was in Tribeca, in the floor above, the owners of that loft were English. And during the Malvinas War, of course, here it's called the Falkland War, even the name of the war <laughs> takes a polarity. The Falkland War, if you wish, say reluctantly, <laughs> they stuck out a flag, an English flag, over the an inner courtyard in the loft. Very provocative 
And from what I understand, Raquel and family stuck out an Argentinian flag <laughs> in the floor below. And there they went. <laughs> That's quite a polarity, isn't it? The most common polarity that pervades our life is the polarity of success, failure. There's nothing untouched. Educational system, psyche, everything. Even right now. Even right now as I'm speaking, if I get caught in the polarity thing, I would be asking myself, how am I doing? How am I doing? I'd be keeping score. Did I, did I remember to tell that joke that I had scribbled in the margin? Am I impressing you? Or, of course, for you in particular in sitting and walking periods, you may ask, Am I doing this right? Am I doing this sitting right? I was uh, interested in a, a thing that a letter published in Buddha Dharma. It's a, one of the many Buddhist uh, publications are coming up out recently. This is in a section, Ask the Teachers, and this is what this uh, um, woman ask, asks. She says, about, oh, she first, okay, no, she, this is part of a letter. Seven years ago, I was diagnosed with chronic mild depression, which occasionally escalates into full-blown depression. About two and a half years ago, I began taking antidepressant medication to control the deeper depressive episodes. The first medication I tried helped for a while and then seemed to quit. The one I'm using now keeps a deep depression at bay, but I think it's destroying my mind. I'm finding it difficult to concentrate. My memory is deteriorating and I'm becoming somehow apathetic. My state of mind is interfering with my meditation practice. The, the doctor wants to give the medication another three months, but I'm afraid that my mind will become mush and there will be no hope for my enlightenment in this life. Since becoming a Buddhist, I wanted to ordain in the Theravada tradition and devote the remainder of my life to intensive practice. But I'm married. I'm also concerned that my current state of mind would lead to a failure as a monastic. Any ideas? What I'm saying is not terribly different to what the teachers say, but I'd rather say it in my words and in the context of this talk. See, if rereading that carefully, 
it's clear that the whole letter is couched in terms of polarities. I mean, with, with, without, you know, taking away from the compassion that this woman deserves, of course, there's no question about that. But I'm, I'm using her letter as, a, as an example of how, in situations that indeed need to be attended to and are serious and painful, the polarity project can become the thing that we get trapped into. Talking about medication, the polarity is between cure and destruction of mind. It's a strong polarity. There's a polarity between depression and meditation practice, which as I have tried to explain in several contexts, is a false polarity. Between mush, mind, and enlightenment. Between marriage and ordaining. I mean, surely you may not or may be able to do the two together, but to emphasize the polarity between intensive practice and failure as a monastic. Uh, she, she hasn't even thought of ordaining and she's already thinking of failing. Which, which has to do with this environment in which everything gets polarized. I'm going to try to resolve these examples later on, but let me, let me go down the list and, and offer one last example which uh, concerns me. It's not very dramatic, but uh, it's interesting that I could catch myself in it. Just a, a few days ago, was it? No, a few weeks ago, actually. Um, I was watching my favorite uh, show, Amy Goodman. And then uh, our oldest uh, daughter, Nora's uh, sister, called Celia. And what I really wanted was to go back to Amy. You know? I mean, as much as I love Celia, it's not, not bad. I just felt it was in the middle of something. But, but I didn't come out and say it directly. See, I became monosyllabic and I didn't uh, respond. And, <laughs> and finally, because Celia wanted to talk, I had to, to admit, well, look, you know, the fact is that I was watching Amy. Can we talk some other time? And she said very, very wisely, you know, why didn't you tell me before, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, but, you see, we, we, we get into that polarity thing. But here, of course, the polarity has to do with success and failure. I flopped. I failed. You know, an opportunity 
And I have many, I must say, to express my love to this particular daughter. And, and there I, I ruined it. Okay, what do we do if we, instead of doing the polarity project, we fall for the halfway project? Let me just go quickly about these various possibilities. See, in this success-failure story, say in my, in my conversation with uh, Celia, it wasn't a question of just measuring right, you know, half time for Celia, half time for Amy, kind of thing, you know. That wasn't the problem. It didn't solve nothing, you know. Uh, with a letter to this lady who writes to Buddha Dharma, it, it's not a question of tuning in the precise dose of medication and things like that. The problem goes much further than that. And, um, you know, the regulating the intensity of the practice, all, all that doesn't really address the main issue here. I take sports, for instance. If we were to believe in the highway project, then the, the, the desirable end of each game would be a tie. It's ridiculous, right? Doesn't solve nothing. And and in in politics again, it would be a stalemate, you know. War, armies fighting for years, and finally they realize they cannot beat each other, and they they resign themselves to a stalemate. Only to start again, of course, for the next opportunity. So then, what is the true alternative? What are the true teachings of the middle way, which have nothing to do with the halfway ambiguity? Unequivocally, is to say no to the polarity trap, which is also an ego trap, because the ego gets involved there. What we have to do is drop the whole charade of polarizing things, where we go for these extremes because the eye wants to grab onto the good and push away the bad. So how can we do that? Let me again go over some of these examples, including my conversation with Celia, for instance. You know, it, it is and it was very simple, as I discussed it with her later on. I just apologized to her for not having been clear. And, and I, I just had to stop evaluating my performance with her. That's what I did. I learned something about 
you know, a, a practical conflict and uh, my inability at that time to find <laughs> the obvious solution to that practical problem. And, and realizing that, it's hard to tell. The whole thing vanished, you know. The whole problem, as I described it initially, was just a, a creature of my imagination, perhaps Celia's imagination. I don't even think she contributed very much. I just made it into a problem when it wasn't. Or giving this talk. I mean, I'm not really being so taken by whether I'm doing well or not. I'm, I'm totally involved in communicating with you. That's the issue, not the performance. Communicating the essence of the teachings and very much so my own experience of them. And likewise uh, with any of you, if the issue comes up, how well am I doing during the sitting, during the walking, or in, in my participation in the group or the inquiry or whatever, how about dropping that issue? So there's nothing to polarize about. You just do what you do as your ability permits you. Being as present as you can with each moment. In, in the group today, uh, somebody reminded us that uh, the problems, what makes the life so difficult, tends to be expectations. Expectations are a polarizing device that we don't need to have. Drop it. And, and the same for the woman who wrote to Buddha Dharma. to forget about whether it's she's in depression in the dark hole and conflict and in a place of joy of conviviality with all of the above just to, to allow herself to be where she is no need to reject this and grab on to that. If we are in a dark place, that's where we are. And there's a lot to be learned from a dark place. And this pol polarization generally occurs because this other lay of wants and unwants that garbles our lives. So, I don't want to be depressed. Fair enough, understandable. That's, that's a reality. But not make that the central issue. Just be where you are. 
And of course, in knowing the example of sports, that's very simple. The solution is very simple. You simply play the game. You may keep score, fine, sure. But you don't have to. And that's not the central thing. At, at Omega, near where I live, every year they have a course that they call the Dance of Tennis, which is precisely that, to learn to play tennis, enjoying the playing of the tennis. It becomes something you do together with something else. Which reminds me, too, of making love. How often in that activity we forget the dance and it becomes keeping score. The situation with politics is not different, you know. It's a little bit like spectator sports, too. You can see your eye, your ego, so light up when you see some things, but you don't have to fully invest yourself there. Now, this is not to ignore that some very real and substantial issues are played out in the political arena, of course, and decided there concerning war and peace, concerning the environment, concerning imperialism, abuses of power, inequality. And of course, it's important to engage in solving them. The more of us we are engaged in trying to solve them, uh, the more likely it is that we can push things in the wholesome way. But again, what I'm talking about here is in the terms of the polarity project is not the action, is the overlay of I'm right, you are wrong, you're full of you know what. Is the turning of the political issues into trophies. We win the war, hey, we got the trophy for our country, kind of thing, or whatever, or for our group. So, when we see that trophy mentality come our way, we just don't buy into it. Thanks, but no thanks. We surely already have our hands full feeling and doing, not just our hands, but also our hearts full feeling and doing for humanity and the planet. We don't need the destruction of the overlaying polarities. In South Africa, they had an opportunity to experience that turnaround from polarization to a, re a true middle way through the workings of what's called the Truth and Reconciliation um, 
commission, I think, yes. As perhaps you know, the, after apartheid was defeated, debunked, uh, brought down, there, there's still a lot of issues pending of rancor and animosity. For instance, by the victims towards the victimizers. This Truth and Reconciliation Commission has brought them together, victim and victimizer, so that they can diffuse the polarity. Michael Lapsey from South Africa, who was recently speaking at Amy Goodman's, in an interview with Amy Goodman, said, I gave my story to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It became part of patchwork of restorative justice, forgiving rather than punishing, acknowledging rather than just knowing. It's an important difference, acknowledging. I acknowledge this is what happened. The horrors of apartheid is what happened. I drop it. Of course, I will not let it happen again as if it's in my hands. But that's another story. referring to, to all of these various areas. A couple of weeks ago I was watching a rerun of Zorba the Greek on TV. On PBS it was. And I resonated with him, with um, Zorba actually, Anthony Quinn, who's the actor just as John Kabat-Zinn did in, in his book, Full Catastrophe Living, which is in, was inspired by Zorba the Greek. Who, Zorba referred to his life, as I mentioned uh, earlier today, as wife, kids, everything, the full catastrophe. And then his face lit up in this in the smile that, to me, hopefully to Anthony Quinn too, embraced it all, being at peace with the poignant enormity of life. And then he went on to dance, a great dance, to, to give himself to the expression of the dance. To me, that illustrated the true middle way so well. Not denying any of this stuff, but just finding a space where we can dance with all of this. We can embrace the full catastrophe, the tsunami, if you wish, both in life and in practice. 
to find a middle ground where we don't have to exclude anything, where there is room for everything. Our lifeline is our connection with life. Not conceptually, not in theory, but in our discovering in ourselves an ability at every concrete moment to, to join the dance of our existence. Let us just do that. And do that in silence for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.